to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm not here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. He is on his way to Saudi Arabia for President Joe Biden's big uh, trip over there. So we will be talking to him tomorrow. But we do have a whole lot to get into today. Uh, Starting the day off with great news, everybody. Once again, Joe Biden has tweeted about gas prices saying it's time for gas retailers to pass the cost declines they're feeling in the market onto American families at the pump. So, you know, it has gotten pretty gloomy over here on Political Misfits lately, but I think the sun is starting to come out now that Biden has for the fifth or 10th or maybe 15th time because I haven't been counting, but he has once again encouraged companies to gouge us a little bit less. So wind in our sales, for sure. I can't believe he's still doing this. Last time it was sort of a threat, right? Last time he said, or else. So I guess the or else was, or else I'm going to tweet at you again, this time with a little graph. Cool. We are, of course, going to talk a little bit more about the economic news this week and about the future of dollar hegemony. We're going to talk about Joe Biden's visit to Israel so far and what is next on his Middle East trip. Surprise, surprise. It's Saudi Arabia. We are going to talk about Ring being dishonest about how it allows police access to its camera footage. And we'll talk about why New York City is running PSAs about nuclear attacks, which uh, Mayor Eric Adams has already been out defending in inimitable Eric Adams fashion. We are going to ask why the U.S. is deliberately hamstringing its own ability to provide aid to Afghanistan. Uh, We are going to get into a lot, including whether we are going to see a a Trump 2024 announcement sooner rather than later. I still think probably not, but hey, I could be wrong. Uh, But I also have a few tidbits that I want to I want to start with before we move on to our first guest. I have been wanting to mention this story from earlier this week on African nations and their debt burdens. Because, you know, as China continues with its Belt and Road program, and as the United States, you know, continues to escalate our propaganda war on China, saying everything that they do internationally is bad, even when it sort of mimics what we've been doing for a long time. So we are seeing more and more warnings about the debt trap that is being sprung by China on any nation that works with them and how all of this Chinese investment is just a way to get these nations in thrall to Beijing. Well, a study of World Bank data by Debt Justice found that African countries' debts with China are a third of what they owe non-Chinese private lenders. And interest rates on Chinese debts, and this is private and public Chinese debts, are half of what they are with these other lenders. Chinese public and private lenders accounted for 12% of the continent's external debts in 2020, while 35% was owed to other private creditors, according to this analysis. And the average interest rate on debt payments owed to China in 2021 was 2.7% compared to 5% on non-Chinese private debt. Now, this is not uniform across the 24 countries that were studied, but the larger picture it paints is not of China really, you know, tightening this noose. And I think that's always worth mentioning as we hear warnings of what terrible things China is planning for the African nations that it works with. Western governments are not, generally speaking, looking out for the well-being of African populations when they complain about growing Chinese investment. They just don't want someone coming along and taking a piece out of their racket. 
I would also like to point out that that average 2.7% interest rate is less than the one the U.S. insists on maintaining on its 1970s-era loan to Cambodia that—we have talked about this on the show before—that was a loan of $278 million to a U.S.-backed, you could probably say U.S. puppet, government that collapsed within five years. At 3% interest, that loan has ballooned to $700 million or more. And the U.S. still, this is as of 2021, insists on collecting it from Cambodia, a country that it carpet bombed illegally, which, you know, carpet bombing is a war crime. Uh, It was a bombing campaign on an undeclared war on Cambodia, and which, of course, remains among the world's poorest countries. Uh, Cambodia has offered different ways to try to restructure this debt, including dropping the interest rate. The U.S. has always said, no, 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 actually, we we would like $700 million from you, uh, a country among the world's 30 poorest. But yeah, let, let's worry about China coming along and committing the novel trick of debt entrapment. And of course, this is all relevant today when we look at Sri Lanka. Uh, There has been a steady stream of articles since the spring about Sri Lanka's scary debt to China. China owns about 10% of its external debt. Uh, Who owns all the rest? Oh, that is uh, U.S. and European banks. That's the World Bank. That's the Asian Development Bank, which are dominated by the United States. And uh, then a bunch of blood-sucking Western private investment groups, chief among them the likes of BlackRock, Prudential, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, you know, familiar names there. But sure, it is the debt to China that is really causing the, the chaos that we are seeing in Sri Lanka today. I wanted to get through that. We are going to take a quick break now and come back with the news from Israel, including what might be in this uh, Jerusalem declaration that was just issued. All that and more coming up here on Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. We are diving in now to what is up with Joe Biden in Israel. Uh, We mentioned yesterday that it was pretty funny to see yet another trip abroad by President Biden start with a member of the Secret Service being sent home for getting into some kind of incident with a member of the public. Uh, But that was yesterday. So we're going to talk about what's been going on today with Wyatt Reed. Wyatt is a Sputnik News correspondent, and he is reporting from Israel. Thanks for joining us, Wyatt. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Michelle. So I have some specific questions for you later, but uh, I want to start generally. I know Joe Biden and the Israeli prime minister uh, just had a news conference earlier today, and I wonder if you can tell us just how that went and if anything major was announced. And I'm kind of wondering what the this I2U2 might be. Yeah, so the major announcements of today's press conference between Israeli caretaker prime minister Yari Lapid and U.S. President Joe Biden were really the re-emphasis on the intention of these countries of Israel and the United States to normalize ties with countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, and also their shared intention of uh, cracking down on what they say are Iranian efforts to 
develop uh, uh, nuclear weapons. So this was kind of the heart of this uh, this, this shared press conference. Uh, Another important takeaway was that Biden effectively refused to uh, agree to bring up the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi Mm -hmm. by the Saudi regime. Uh, He would not promise to bring that up in any of their meetings, uh, which seems to indicate this kind of double standard that a lot of observers are are, uh, describing U.S. foreign policy with. I spoke earlier at a uh, at a rally in opposition to the meeting of U.S. President Joe Biden and Palestinian Authority President mm-hmm. Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, that is set for tomorrow in Bethlehem. A number of Palestinian demonstrators were out tonight at Al Manara Square in Ramallah, where they described that meeting as an insult to Palestinians. They're calling on Mahmoud Abbas to abstain from meeting with Joe Biden, describing that planned planned 40-minute meeting that they have uh, for tomorrow and comparing it with the several days that Joe Biden has spent with Israeli officials. Uh, they say that's insulting. And mm. they, uh, I, you know, I, I spoke with uh, a man named Mustafa Barghouti, who's the secretary general of the Palestinian National uh, Unity, uh, excuse me, uh, Palestinian National Initiative, I should say, and the former information minister of the uh, unity government. Um, And this was exactly what he was saying, that uh, effectively the Palestinians, uh, at least in terms of the liberation movement, uh, are not on the same page with Mahmoud Abbas. They're not on the same page with Joe Biden. In fact, demonstrators were even burning photos of Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that really tells you, especially given his comments over the past couple of days, describing his bone deep commitment to Israel, uh, talking uh, (laughs) Biden being described by Israeli officials as a great Zionist and one of the the best friends Israel has ever had. Uh, Palestinians are taking note of this, it seems, Mm -hmm. and they're not liking what they see. Yeah. What what have we heard uh, from Biden or from Yair Lapid about U.S. support for the old uh, two state solution or any path toward peace between Israel and Palestine? Have we heard anything, anything at all on that front? Biden briefly uh, mentioned the two state solution, I believe, once during his uh, remarks yesterday. Uh, he would not use the phrase uh, Palestinian. So, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of t- uh-huh, tells great. you uh, where, where he's at. Uh, yeah, I mean, really, it doesn't seem to be on the radar. And this is also what I'm getting from journalist colleagues here, uh, from activists, from demonstrators. This two-state solution for many years has been regarded as kind of a farce in Palestine. And now uh, a lot of people get the sense that they're not even going to maintain that farce, not even going to keep up with this sort of fiction mm-hmm. uh, that that Israel and the United States have even you know any intention on one day going through with this two-state solution, which I should note, uh, you know, less than half of the villages uh, that that the Palestinian villages that uh, existed at the time of the creation of the state of Israel remain. Mm-hmm. Uh, Settlers, they are a constant phenomenon uh, in much of the West Bank that is not yet already occupied. 
So this is a process that is ongoing, this colonization, this occupation. It hasn't stopped. Um, and absent any real good faith efforts by uh, Israel or by the U.S. to put an end to this, I can't see much more uh, purchase from uh, Palestinian civil society or Palestinian society in general mm-hmm. in terms of this political process. Wyatt, I want to ask, you know, what did the the people of this protest against the uh, insulting 40-minute meeting scheduled with Mahmoud Abbas, what did the people at that protest uh, want, right? What, what what would they like to see from the United States or or would they like to just demonstrate that the United States is really not a credible broker of peace in this situation and they, they want something else? Because, you know, part of this Jerusalem decla- declaration that was uh, released today has language on, you know, not singling out Israel for criticism, it, you know, opposes BDS, for example. And so I wonder, you know, if if this meeting with Mahmoud Abbas is, is not not appropriate or not uh, respectful in in their eyes. What kind of what kind of changes would they like to see? Well, I think first of all, they'd probably prefer to see a different president. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Donald Trump was certainly not uh, preferable for many Palestinians, especially given his moves to relocate the embassy to such a politically divisive location. Uh, but Biden is also, you know, as he has bragged over and over, is a lifelong Zionist. Uh, he opined years ago that uh, if the United, if the state of Israel did not exist, then the United States would have to create her. Uh, I think people take him at his word here when he says that kind of thing. They really don't view there as being uh, any possible outcome from this meeting that would be anything other than legitimate uh, legitimation mm-hmm. of the occupation uh, without any real credible efforts to uh, to put a stop to it. We do know there there may be some leeway in terms of uh, restoration of U.S. economic aid to Palestine. Uh, but it's important to see this in the context of uh, factions of the Israeli government and the U.S. government viewing uh, economic insecurity as in and of itself a potential cause uh, for broader insecurity uh, in the region. So, you know, this is the kind of, you know, they, they may allow for some limited economic development, but only really within the context of the current occupation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so so from that perspective, people, you know, everyday Palestinians, not just the overtly political ones, uh, really, I, I haven't talked to a single Palestinian so far who's expressed anything but contempt for Joe Biden. So, you know, from the perspective of the organizers, I think really they they don't expect that the whole lot uh, would be possible, even if Mahmoud Abbas were to be able to get a longer meeting with Joe Biden. Uh, they, you know, the sense that I get is people expect that it would just be uh, more hot air. And, uh, you know, speaking of the question of raising the murders of American citizens or residents, uh, I wonder if Joe Biden or Antony Blinken has said anything about the death of journalist and U.S. citizen Shireen Abu Akla on this trip so far. Shireen Abu Akla uh, was a reporter for Al Jazeera who was killed, uh, it, it seems extremely clear, was killed by uh, an Israeli member of the Israeli armed forces while she was 
was working while she was clearly marked as press. Um, and there have been, you know, some some media investigations into exactly who is to blame for her death. There has also been the sort of official official Israeli investigation into it. None of those have been very satisfying for Shireen Abu Akhla's family and the response by the U.S. government to the you know, the death of its citizen while she was doing her job and clearly marked as press at the hands of the Israeli armed forces has really, uh, you know, been something the administration's kind of trying to kick around and act like, oh, it's 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 really just an unfortunate confluence of events that has led to this terrible accident. And, uh, you know, let's not politicize it. So I wonder if we have heard anything about Shireen Abu Akhla, either from Joe Biden or from Antony Blinken, who is, you know, in the wings there somewhere in Israel as well. We haven't heard anything from Biden, and I think that's unlikely to change. We have heard from Anthony Blinken that he has supposedly invited the family of slain Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla to the United States uh, for a meeting with him. Hmm. Uh, Family members were hoping that since they are currently in Jerusalem, U.S. President Joe Biden is currently in Jerusalem, that they would be able to meet uh, with him directly and plead their case. Uh, his or Her niece, <clears throat> Alina, Lina Abu Akla, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a letter to Biden saying that your administration's actions can only be seen as an attempt to erase the extrajudicial killing of Shireen and further entrench the systemic impunity enjoyed by Israeli forces and officials for unlawfully killing Palestinians. Uh, so, you know, I think that is the attitude, not just of the family of Shireen, but of Palestinians in general, uh, that this supposed meeting is, is a bit too little too late, that Biden, or Blinken, I should say, announced this invitation uh, publicly. It sort of suggests to me that uh, this was a response to that letter, that they want to be seen publicly as being uh, receptive, at least, to uh, to this family whose who's, uh, matriarch was effectively murdered, assassinated mm-hmm. by Israeli forces, according to, as you noted, a number of uh, independent investigations, including from mainstream outlets mm-hmm. like CNN, uh, who have long time, who have been long time supporters, uh, more broadly of the Israeli government, who many of their correspondents even uh, had family members serving in the IDF, for example, or they themselves served in the IDF. Um, you know, I think. This this may reflect a, a kind of effort by the Biden administration to straddle both sides of the fence here. Uh, they do not want to be seen publicly as supporting uh, Palestinians, uh, but uh, especially given sort of the tenuous relationship that Biden, that Democrats have had recently uh, and the uh, absolute blowout that Democrats are headed for in November, I don't think they want to add any more fuel to the fire in terms of potential Israel lobbying. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, they, they uh, you know, aren't willing to absolutely are not willing to go full on, you know, Ilhan Omar, full mm-hmm. on squad mode and, abso- and actually, you know, speak uh, 
clearly and comprehensively about the murder of an American journalist, uh, that does not seem to be on the table. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just seeing that uh, a group of Democratic senators have sent a letter to the Biden administration, well, to to, um, Blinken himself, pressing for answers uh, regarding the U.S.'s review into the uh, death of uh, Sharina Abu Akla. And so I kind of wonder if that has a little bit more or has as much to do with Biden's uh, diminishing political popularity as it does, you know, genuine concern for the plight of Palestinians and for their treatment at the hands of uh, the Israeli armed forces. But, uh, you know, I I guess it's something I'll I'll take that in the absence of really anything in Israel. Um, I want to get into also uh, Iran, right, because this trip to Israel has been very, very much about Iran. The Jerusalem Declaration that the two sides signed states that the U.S. will not allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. We have, of course, been told that Iran is, uh, I don't know, three weeks, three months away from having a nuclear weapon for at least 20 years now. Uh, But Joe Biden on this trip has been reassuring Israel that it won't be made less safe by a return to nuclear agreements with Iran. I am a little bit confused that we're supposed to think that might still be possible uh, because negotiations have stalled out really badly. And in an interview that aired yesterday on Israeli TV, uh, Joe Biden was saying the deal uh, he wanted to go back to an Iran deal that in the current round of negotiations, the U.S. had laid out its position and now we're waiting for Iran's response. He also said the only thing worse than the Iran that exists now is an Iran with nuclear weapons, which is just a wildly insulting statement to make uh, about a country. Uh, so, you know, Joe Biden is out there saying it was a mistake to to break out of the deal. Iran's closer to a nuclear weapon now than they were before. So we have all of this sort of hot air about really seriously, guys, we want to get back to a deal. But he also continues to reject Iran's demand that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps be taken off Washington's foreign terrorist list, even if Keeping the RGC on the list means no deal. Listing the RGC as a foreign terrorist group is something that happened completely outside of any nuclear deal. The Trump administration did that in 2019. This is long after the deal was made by the Obama administration and long after Trump had pulled out of it. And so, you know, I wonder, Wyatt, how committed should we really believe the administration is to getting a new deal if they refuse to undo this inflammatory move by by the Trump White House that had nothing to do with nuclear programs? Yeah, it certainly seems that there's no real intention on the part of the Biden administration to actually reenact the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, that Iranian nuclear deal you mentioned that Trump unilaterally withdrew from several years ago. Uh, and which the Biden administration has now set out its own list of prerequisites, uh, which the Iranians must fulfill before the U.S. will come back to the negotiating table. Chief among them, as you said, uh, is that that delisting of the IRGC. That's not going to happen, even though that is effectively the main stumbling block Mm -hmm. to a return to the deal at this point. Uh, Biden also expressed his willingness to use military force, Uh And, you know, he said that this would be as a last resort. Uh, But uh, in in terms of of what, you know, this this joint statement says, uh, the United States stresses that integral to this pledge is the commitment never to allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon and that it is prepared to use all elements of its national power to ensure that outcome. So this is a threat, right? Mm -hmm. A threat. On the one hand, they have the carrot 
of you know this sort of invisible disappearing carrot now of returning to the deal to the to the deal which they continue to uh, inf- uh, to subject to new requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, you have this stick, and that uh, also consists of recently announced sanctions uh, that Anthony Blinken announced the other day, um, which they are using as a punitive measure to punish Iran for not having come back to this deal that the U.S. itself withdrew mm-hmm. from in the first place. Yeah, so I mean, I, I honestly wonder why— why do we put on this charade, right? It feels like so much of this trip has been buying uh, Biden, you know, quote unquote, reassuring Israel that a new deal won't hurt them, right? That's been a, a, a major running theme and Israel saying it's a bad deal. You know, we got to be scared of Iran. Why even bother if negotiations ended months ago and the U.S. is totally uninterested in resuming them? I genuinely want, like, w- what is the point of this charade? Frankly, I think this is partly electoral politics, right? This is uh, the Biden administration attempting to somehow demonstrate to Democrats, uh, to Democratic voters, that there is some legitimate, you know, interest in democracy, freedom, and human rights, and all these other sort of buzzwords that they use when talking about uh, the need to interfere in other countries. Uh, that that this is sort of what's motivating the U.S. foreign policy. And not sort of this naked self-interest that we see on display with, you know, the attempts to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia with mm-hmm. Biden's planned visit to Jeddah in the coming in the next couple of days, uh, where he's going to uh, meet with a man and a regime, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, which mm-hmm. he promised to turn into a pariah not just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think we the more that they abandon these campaign pledges, these uh, efforts to end U.S. support for legitimate autocrats, dictatorships run by, to be frank, head-chopping jihadists, that uh, the more we see them need to pivot to other efforts to demonstrate their sort of moral superiority. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, although, frankly, I I view the, the, the lack of U.S., return to a an Iranian deal is more or less inevitable, uh, given what I, I see as a democratic refusal to stand up to the Israel lobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that the Democrats are willing to acknowledge that publicly, at least not at this point. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about, uh, you know, the, the stage setting for this trip to Saudi Arabia that is part of this trip in Israel. Uh, Yair Lapid said at a press conference, you know, Mr. President, you're going to meet with the leaders of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, Oman and Iraq. And I would like you to press them all a, a message for us. Our hand is outstretched in peace. We are ready to share our technology, ready for our people to meet and learn, ready to collaborate and for our businesses to cooperate. And so I wonder, you know, how, how much of this trip is about Biden's trip to go and talk to the Gulf Cooperation Council? How much is, is this sort of stage setting for some new agreement between Israel and Arab nations? Well, it's hard to say exactly what uh, proportion of this. It's, it's obviously a significant portion of the deal. We see uh, potential uh, for a significantly increased economic and security cooperation mm-hmm. uh, between Israel and a number of Gulf states. Uh, there is talk about a joint de- air defense zone to protect against Iranian drones and mm-hmm. missiles. So really 
what you have here is kind of the completion, the culmination of a long process by which uh, Israel and the Gulf state monarchies have decided that the enemy of my enemy is my friend um, and that all of them viewing Iran as uh, such a threat that it's worth it to uh, to do a deal with, you know, people who you spent the past 50 years condemning to death mm -hmm. and condemning as, as, as you know, inhumans. Uh, that uh, all kind of went out the window over the past a decade or so as we saw uh, Iranian uh, Iran strengthen, as we saw them attempt to show support for the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad. Uh, all of this seems to have culminated in a, a new uh, kind of alliance of these autocrats and of, uh, you know, Israel, which is frequently described in the U.S. press as the only democracy in the Middle East. Right. Uh, all of those supposed differences seem to not matter that much when it comes to Iran. I also uh, I, I want to touch on is the U.S.-Israeli relationship and uh, Israel's or arsenal, right? You talked about the U.S. in this Jerusalem declaration uh, basically saying that it would be willing to use force against Iran to prevent Iran from uh, getting a nuclear weapon. Uh, Israel, of course, uh, consistently uses force to uh, thwart Iran's nuclear program with a its own program of assassinating scientists uh, and, and other people working on it. And so I think it is— it, interesting and appropriate that one of the first things that happened on Biden's trip yesterday uh, was that he was was given a display of Israel's weaponry, including a look at the Iron Beam, which is Israel's new laser defense system. Uh, the New York Times noted that the defense system is intended to complement, not replace, the Iron Dome and David Sling. So good news, the U.S. will still get to give billions of dollars to re replenish that dome system. And I think there is a pledge for even more weapons funding in that new declaration. And so I, I wanted to just ask you to put put these in context, right, to talk about the role the U.S. plays in funding Israel's war machine. And also, if you can give us a sense of, of where and how Israel's arsenal is most often used. Yeah, so— the U.S. is the prime backer of the Israeli administration uh, by far. They, you know, if you'll recall uh, in the past year, the U.S. replenishment of the Iron Dome system, uh, so-called air defense system, uh, was a big sticking point, uh, especially coming, uh, you know, around so much, around the time of so much violence uh, in Gaza being inflicted uh, by the Israelis. It was certainly a big point of contention in Congress. A uh, number of officials, especially Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, drew outrage for, uh, for sort of, according to a number of Palestinian activists, feigning outrage uh, over the deaths uh, in Gaza and then going on to support this bill providing more arms, more rockets for the Israelis so that they can. I think we've lost Wyatt Reed there. I wanted him to talk a little bit more about uh, U.S. support for Israeli weapon systems. And also, I was very curious, you know, I was curious the sense that you get in Israel of how that country considers its relationship with the United States, because, you know, you, you get a lot of— uh, 
There's some uh, disagreement in the U.S. over uh, who who is really leading who, right? And and what does what does each country actually get out of the relationship? I have a pretty clear sense of what the U.S. gets out of its relationship with Israel, but I do wonder what Israelis think uh, they get and what they would like to get from the United States. But we will definitely talk to Wyatt Reed again tomorrow about what happens on Friday with Joe Biden and Antony Blinken's trip in Israel. So maybe we can get some answers to those questions then. I think we will go ahead and take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back and talk about uh, some more technological erosions to our privacy, once again, involving our old nemesis, Amazon. We'll get into all of that and more coming up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I want to talk about doorbell cameras. Yesterday, we learned that despite publicly stating that police can only get access to ring, the ring doorbell cameras recordings with either the express permission of the camera owner or a warrant, uh, it turns out that's not true. Ring uh, said in responses to questions from Senator Ed Markey that, ah, actually, we have given police user footage without either of these permissions, right? So without the permission of the person who owns the camera or a warrant from a judge, 11 times just in 2022. Joining us to talk about what this means is Chris Garafa. They're a technologist and privacy specialist. Chris, thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be back with you, Michelle. Thank you. So Ring, of course, is a subsidiary of Amazon. And Senator Ed Markey had written to Amazon to ask it to clarify Ring's relationship with American police and ask it to commit to some reforms, including never accepting financial contributions from policing agencies, never allowing immigration uh, enforcement agencies to request ring recordings and never participating in police sting operations. Ring said no thank you to all of those. Uh, The company also said it reserves the right to supply police with footage in, quote, emergencies which it defines broadly as cases involving imminent danger or death or serious physical injury to any person. Amazon didn't clarify what an emergency was beyond that. Ring also wouldn't say what in those 11 cases made it believe that they were emergencies. A Vox story on this subject notes that American police departments are pretty keen to be able to pitch Ring on their various emergencies, or that is at least the conclusion I draw from the information that Amazon's partnership with law enforcement has expanded from 405 participating departments at this time in 2019 up to 2,161 today. Uh, And so I will stop there with the stage setting and just ask, how 
shady is it, what Ring is doing? And uh, how common are these emergency use carve-outs that Ring is falling back on to be able to hand over this footage without getting permission from the camera owner or without a warrant? I mean, it's extremely shady. Like, we, we can look at a lot of companies out there who have our private information who, who say, rightly so, we will fight any requests, we will require a warrant signed by a judge, and we'll do what we can to prevent giving away your information. Mm-hmm. Ring is basically saying, well, if they ask nicely and make it sound like an emergency, then we'll just give it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, this is something that Amazon has had to reckon with on its, on its own with its facial recognition software called recognition. Mm-hmm. You know, during the uprising a couple of years ago, Amazon said we're going to put a one-year moratorium on the police use of recognition. Um, and that, you know, kind of that year kind of passed and it, there hasn't been a lot more made of that. So we have mm-hmm. to look at this not just as a ring issue, but an Amazon and an industry issue as well. I think, you know, 11 times just in the first half of 2022, we're only in July here. You know, mm-hmm. we still have plenty of time left yeah. this year for Amazon to be giving over ring footage. And again, let's just be clear. This is you buy this doorbell and put it up in the front of your house and you hook it up and you got your app on your phone so you can see if it's the UPS guy coming up to your door. Right. But of course, it's going to be recording anytime it senses movement, um, sound, things like that. And Amazon can then just go ahead and give it to the police because they said so, because mm-hmm. they said, well, this was an emergency. This person it relies on, by the way, on Amazon believing the police and the police being truthful, which I, I don't know how anyone could think realistically the police are going to be truthful about these kinds of situations. All mm-hmm. they have to say, as we know, I feared for my life. I was afraid and they can shoot somebody. All they have to say to Amazon is this person is a danger to themselves and others others actively and therefore give us this video. So this goes far beyond what we already knew that police and ring were doing where police could actually go and request through the neighbors app to say people on, you know, this street, if you're on main street, could you send us video from 10:04 to 10:12 PM mm-hmm. last night? And you could say yes or no, you could choose to do that or not. Now, you mentioned the concerns that were brought up uh, by Senator Markey and the responses that Amazon had. They didn't just say no. They actually said, uh, I'll read from their response. Ring is com- Ring participated in an exhaustive review of these issues as part of NYU's audit, and Ring stands by the commitments we have made both prior to and during the audit. Mm-hmm. So they're basically saying, we're not going to commit to never providing information to federal law enforcement enforcement, immigration uh, enforcement agencies to private financial or private policing agencies, any of that. They're, mm-hmm. they're basically saying no, but in a polite, legal way. Right. And so I, this is sort of related to, to what you've brought up. You, you say and Ring says uh, we we are committed to privacy. We're going to protect your data and, you know, we're not going to give it away except, you know, except in these uh, these emergency cases. But the Intercept notes that, you know, if, if Ring was really keen on helping users protect their recordings, they would have made uh, end to end encryption the default setting for these cameras. And so I, I wanted to return to, you know, what would be some 
clear technological indicators that Ring is taking this seriously. And, you know, what what were some of the reforms that Ed Markey was suggesting that they are they are not going to uh, accept? You you just listed several not not giving this information to immigration authorities, uh, not giving this information to private policing companies. What else? What could the company what would the company be doing if they were really actually taking privacy seriously? Certainly, the end-to-end encryption would be a, a really important thing, and that would mean that no one, including Amazon, by the way, could mm-hmm. see the contents of your video. Only you, with your passcode or however it's secured, could see the contents of your video. You could then choose to share those out with friends, whatever you want to do with them, but Amazon wouldn't have the ability to go in and share, uh, You know, or the police wouldn't be able to get them. Mm-hmm. Another thing in in this letter is that Senator Markey asks, will Ring commit to never incorporating voice recognition technology into its products? If no, why not? Mm. And Amazon's response, I believe this is the shortest response to any of these questions. Ring does not currently offer voice recognition. Okay. That's it. So they're not promising not to include it. Mm-hmm. Now, what could voice recognition do? That could not just tell you if you can't see the person at your door. It could tell you who they are based on the sound of their voice, if the if it's accurate. Right. Really, I think that we need to step back and really consider, because Marky does ask about, you know, can you onboard non-law enforcement agencies like animal services or social services organizations or public health agencies? And I think that's kind of missing the point here is that we don't need to have a friendlier surveillance state. We need to get rid of these surveillance state overall. And these ring doorbells really are just being part of that surveillance state. They are enforcing it, and they're telling us that if it's going to make us a little safer and more comfortable at home, that it's okay to participate in this, this criminal system that monitors us from birth to death and from morning to night. Mm-hmm. Before we get into uh, one of the police departments that is uh, wanting to access these camera recordings, I just want to stop on Ed Markey for a minute. Uh, has he been on this case for a while? Uh, Is he doing a good job of trying to point out the dangers of this cozy relationship between law enforcement and Amazon? Tell, Tell me about Ed Markey, surveillance hawk. Yeah, I mean, Ed Markey, Ron Wyden, uh, there's a few others, you know, in, in Congress who do often speak up. And I believe we've talked about Ron Wyden a number of times uh, just on this show alone, you know, and, and they do speak up, whether it's about private surveillance or government surveillance, but their role only goes so far. Mm-hmm. You know, they aren't going to necessarily be leaking information, right, or whistleblowing, let's say. Uh, they're not going to be doing that. They're going to write these letters. They're going to say we didn't get the answers that we wanted, but I want to see where the action is, really. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's important that we know these things. I think proposing these questions uh, as uh, as Senator Markey has done is extremely important because then we get to get these responses from Amazon. Mm-hmm. But I'm hesitant to rely on a Markey or uh, a Warren or Wyden or any of them to actually make any real change or really relying on them to do the change themselves. Uh, talk to us now about one of these police departments that wants access to these private camera recordings, the San Francisco Police Department. Talk to us about what they are proposing and why the ACLU is putting up a, such resistance. 
Yeah, the ACLU of North Car- North Carolina, ACLUNC.org, has a great piece on this called, With Our Rights Under Attack, We Can't Let SFPD Exploit Private Surveillance Cameras. Because that's effectively, <clears throat> excuse me, what the San Francisco Police Department wants to do. They want to be able to tap into this massive network of private surveillance cameras that exist all around the city. Mm-hmm. And it's, so this went through a, um, a committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors on Monday morning. It's going to continue going through various legal processes and, uh, you know, in San Francisco. And if you are out there, if you're in San Francisco and you live there, go, to, you know, take a look at what the Board of Supervisors is doing with this proposal uh, and go, when you have an opportunity, speak out against it, because it would basically give police access to all of these private cameras that exist all across San Francisco. And San Francisco is actually one of the cities that is just magnifying its surveillance capability uh, extremely significantly. There is um, effectively a private network of cameras in San Francisco that have been put up by uh by public, private public partnerships funded by a private billionaire who, mm-hmm. you know, says the, the standard stuff. I'm so tired of the drugs and the crime and the poverty. Mm-hmm. Well, instead of spending, you know, millions of dollars on addressing those things, uh, people have gone and just spent millions of dollars on cameras instead. Mm-hmm. So this would be really a warrantless way for police to go through uh, and conduct effectively what is live surveillance. This, I think, partly answers my next question. I was going to say, it's the, it's the ACLU of Northern California, not North Carolina, if people uh, want to go and find where that report is. But I, this sort of answers my question of why Amazon uh, is, well, that answers the question as to why the police departments, I guess, are, are cultivating this relationship with Amazon and with Ring, right? So they can get around, you know, pesky limitations like asking for warrants. I guess my question is, what what is in it for Amazon? Right. I mean, I know, of course, they with their facial recognition technology, they want to be able to sell that to uh, to different departments. But when it's just, you know, asking for data, the police departments aren't paying for it. Right. So I wonder what you think is really in it for for Amazon. Is there something beyond just having, you know, being able to sell facial recognition technology to every police department in the United States? Because even that would be kind of small potatoes for such a big company. So what do you what do you think is it? Well, I would say it's a kind of a follow the money thing, right? Because even if the police departments aren't directly paying Amazon for access to these videos, and in some cases, there's nothing that would actually stop Amazon or other companies from charging a nominal fee Mm -hmm. uh, for the production of that video, Mm -hmm. they're still building up goodwill and good relationships with the police departments, who we all know have very significant influence on local politicians, state politicians, who then then have influence on the federal level. So they're building up and saying this brand of Amazon, not the way we see Amazon as the place to shop for you know cheap stuff that's delivered in hours, mm-hmm. but they're building this brand of Amazon as this company that has a treasure trove of information, video of you know, so many places around the country, and they're willing to just hand it over. And so when somebody else, when Amazon comes back and says, hey, ICE, we, you should work with us. Um, we'll host your stuff here, your, your, you know, your services here. Or, mm-hmm. you know, hey, San Francisco, let us gather all of that video together for you. They're, they're more willing to entertain the idea of contracting with Amazon. 
because it's it's going to be useful to have a cozy relationship with someone who has so much data that you might want for a variety of reasons. Um, Chris, what do you say to the if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry about crowd who say, hey, you know, this is just this is these are just like street surveillance cameras. If you if you're, you know, walking past somebody's house doing a crime, why should you expect not to be caught? Well, who says you're doing a crime just by walking past somebody's house, right? right. But that's yeah. all that is seen is that you're walking down the street, right? Uh, look, the people who say, you know, I've got nothing to hide. I mean, we thought for 50 years that Roe v. Wade was the law of the land and wasn't going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And now web searches you made a month ago could be illegal if you made them today. Mm-hmm. So I would point that out. I would also point when it comes to cameras and other types of electronic surveillance. You know, after uh, the January 6th, uh, you know, coup attempt, people in D.C., just residents in D.C. who happen to be in the general area, not even in the capital, mm-hmm. were getting visits from law enforcement because their phones placed them in that general area around that time. Mm-hmm. So they weren't doing anything wrong. They were just around living their lives in D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were visited by law enforcement. So it could be a Google search. It could be the fact that your phone hit a cell phone tower in a certain area. We have other other cases where people have been going for a bike ride or a walk, and they've been in the neighborhood of where a crime has happened, and Google or AT&T have given up their information. So it's not about not having anything to hide. It's actually mm-hmm. about the fact that this massive surveillance dragnet really pulls everyone in, whether or not you want to be seen. Yeah. And I also want to ask, you know, we've touched on this before, but there is this sense that the, you know, the further you sort of remove human beings from the collection process, the more pure and unbiased it will be. And I wanted to just get your thoughts on this idea that uh, you know, f- facial recognition technology, voice recognition technology, when it, um, you know, comes I- into more common use, that somehow this is going to be uh, unbiased and it-, it will be it'll be better. It's not going to put the same old groups at, at risk for uh, wrongful arrest or harassment. Well, what we've seen time and time again, especially with facial recognition, but with also with many other algorithms is that. It's the information that you put into them that governs what comes out of them. So, for example, facial recognition algorithms, infamously trained mostly on white faces, primarily white men, but mostly just white people overall, so do extremely poorly identifying people of color. So what does that lead to? That leads to, you know, black men predominantly being misidentified by these systems when they're used by law enforcement, which leads to at the very least, police involvement and questioning, possibly arrest, incarceration, trial, all of those things. Mm. We have the other kinds of algorithms, right, that try to judge whether you're credit worthy or whether you should be able to get a job or whether you're going to commit or recommit a crime. Mm. And those same thing, it's the information that goes into them, the training information that doesn't take into consideration any human circumstance that then leads to the these poor outcomes that we see. So really what happens is, yes, there could be a biased human looking at a resume or a piece of a loan application, Mm -hmm. but there could also be a biased computer that no one can actually sit there and say, hey, you know, you're biased computer. We can't have you doing this. Right, right. 
I also wanted to ask you, Chris, uh, I know you tweeted yesterday about an agreement struck between the United States and Mexico on smart technology to prevent illegal border crossings. And I wonder if you can tell us why you aren't celebrating this great technological fix. Oh, so many reasons. First of all, just the response from liberal kind of intelligentsia has just been so hypocritical. Mm -hmm. They condemned Trump for wanting to build a wall, but Biden building a tech, you know, building a tech solution on the wall uh, is somehow a great thing. And it's not. And $1.2 billion from Mexico to pay for a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not going to save any lives. It's Mm -hmm. going to make crossing the border more dangerous. This is not a tech issue. This is a human issue. Mm -hmm. It's not going to stop people from trying to escape the disastrous circumstances that in many cases the U.S. foreign policy has created in their home countries like Mexico, Honduras, and others, and it's not going to make it any safer for them to cross when they do so. So, Mm. no, it's not a victory. Smart technology is going to end up getting people killed. Do we even know what this would be? Is this like some kind of tracking system? So you cross the border and somehow you you, you end up... hanging on some radar and so people can come and track you down like what what even would this this be this smart border tech so they've been quiet about this particular uh, implementation about what they want to do next here mm-hmm. but what i what i would guess i would wager a guess that it's more ground sensors so mm-hmm. underground they can sense when people are walking um they, you know, more cameras, more mm-hmm. surveillance drones over the over the border, um, you know, things like that. Um, there's a number of other types of sensors that they have tried or want to try on the border. And many of these, by the way, many of these systems have been first tested in Palestine by the mm-hmm. Israelis against Palestinians, particularly in Gaza. And that's a selling point for a lot of the companies that come in to contract with the U.S. government to build these the border systems at the U.S.-Mexico border. Man, underground sensors that ping when people are walking so you can send, like, robot dogs into the desert after them or something is not a system that seems impossible to imagine. And the idea that you would have people cheering that on because it's being done without the involvement of human beings and that somehow makes it more humane is insane to me. It is sort of like if it's not if it's not some, you know, dude with a bunch of uh, neck hair who weighs 300 pounds, but it's being done by a robot, somehow that's not scary and dystopian. Well, it's not happening to the people who are celebrating it. Um, they can turn it off. They don't have to see the videos. They don't have to worry about it because their favorite liberal media stations won't be showing it. Right. And then really, that's that's how it is. And I'm, I'm being a little harsh here, but it's it's the reality. It's the you know, people oppose Trump's wall and most people for very good reasons. Some people only opposed it because it was Trump doing it uh, mm-hmm. and not you know, Clinton. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's the way I see it. But I think we, we need to take a bigger picture look at all of these uses of technology and how we can, how we should, and, you know, could actually use them to make the world a better place. No, exactly. This is thematically the same as what the uh, San Francisco police department uh, proposes to do, or that, that uh, wealthy funder of all of these surveillance cameras. It's not going to solve the problem of, uh, of drug addiction, of homelessness, of uh, crimes being done on the street. Sometimes just because people don't have a private place to do these things. It is simply going to uh, catch and criminalize the people 
doing them. And so, yeah, all the smart border technology you want is not going to ease any of the pressures that are driving people over that border. And it is wild to me that we can continue pouring good money after bad uh, in, you know, supposed pursuit of a solution to these problems. Uh, Chris Garafa, it is always a delight to talk to you. Why don't you tell our listeners uh, what you're up to at Covert Action Magazine and elsewhere? Sure. Well, you can, uh, yeah, you can hear me every week. I'm the co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. We are on WBAI radio at 9 a.m. every Wednesday, and you can get our podcast at covertactionmagazine.com, and you can listen to it wherever you want. You can also find me on this station every Tuesday on By Any Means Necessary. Thanks for joining us, Chris. We are going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and talk about the politics of shaking hands or not and why that doesn't matter and we shouldn't be paying any attention to it. We're going to talk a little bit more about what's going on economically in the United States and beyond. I want to talk uh, about whether Donald Trump is going to run in 2024 or not. There's a whole lot to get into in our second hour. Stick around for it. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We will be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte, and boy, we have got bad polls. We've got nuclear attack public service announcements. Uh, We've got handshake politics. We've got Afghanistan and hunger. Uh, We've got more on John Bolton's conversation with Jake Tapper uh, on Tuesday because I just can't let that go. We've got a lot to get into and getting into it with us is Ted Rawl. He's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is A Stringer, and he co-hosts the DMZ America podcast with Scott Stantis. Ted, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, you know, it's Thursday, which means that we have another poll showing people don't want Joe Biden or Kamala Harris to go after the Democratic presidential nomination in 2024. Yesterday's poll is of the Yahoo YouGov flavor, and it shows that just 18 percent of Americans say President Biden should run for reelection in 2024. That is the lowest figure yet, according to Yahoo. Sixty four percent say he should bow out. For the first time, more Democrats now also say Biden should pass on a second term. They are at 41 percent than that he should pursue one. That's 35 percent. But Democrats also do not want to see Kamala Harris at the head of the ticket when they were asked who they would rather see as the nominee in 2024. 27% of Democrats and Democratic leading independents said Biden. 19% said Harris. Both of them are getting beaten by not sure at 30% and Harris by someone else at 20%, which just, I like getting beaten by the grab bag. Uh, I mean, We all know how valuable opinion polls are when it comes to policy, right? You can just look at polling on how people feel about health care reform or a higher minimum wage or marijuana legalization or abortion. But this is not policy. This is politics. And so I wonder if you have any sense of whether the party is going to respond to this, Ted, and how they might respond to it. 
Yeah, Michelle, literally uh, while I was on hold waiting to come on, uh, I got a news alert that my latest for the Washington for the Wall Street Journal is about this exact topic. And mm. it just went online and people can look at it. I, I've been thinking a lot about this. I think the polls mean a lot. Um, the, the approval rating that was in the New York Times uh, pool, poll is uh, is 33 uh, percent. You're now approaching. He's Biden's approaching Kamala Harris territory. Mm. Uh, she's been Ooh, lingering dangerous. around 20 around 29. Uh, you know, Biden had been enjoying about a 40 percent approval, 41 uh, for for months, for a long time, really. And suddenly it's just fallen completely through the floor. I did a little historical dive to see if anybody has ever managed to recover from these kinds of numbers in the history of modern polling at this stage in their presidency. And the answer, as you probably can predict, is no. Mm -hmm. uh, Barack Obama uh, had 46%, which was not considered great at this point, uh, but he did recover. You can recover, but it seems like about 42, 41% is the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you need certain things to come together. So uh, I think this is pretty, it's pretty catastrophic. I mean, mm -hmm. you have 64% of Democrats don't want Biden to run again. Of Democrats. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, the, the Republicans, let's not even get into that. So uh, his presidency is effectively over. Uh, and I don't think that he can turn this around anytime soon. Um, I think it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's finished. Um, mm -hmm. I've been, I've been advocating for the president and the vice president to announce after the midterms that they're not running for reelection and, you know, keep the DNC out of it, keep their thumbs off the scale, have a wide open race, see who presents themselves. Uh, that's the Democrats' best chance, I think, uh, for 2024. Obviously, the midterms are going to be completely catastrophic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, this is about if the Democratic Party is thinking about its own well-being, you would think they, they have to be thinking we have got to get rid of, of uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. This isn't even about, you know, it, well, that that they are going to hamstring them if they're trying to actually beat Republicans in 2024. And so you sort of ironically are in this position where the best thing for the party to do is do this sort of almost unheard of thing of, you know, chucking, chucking the incumbent to the side. But you've got to think if the Democratic Party wants to be taken seriously as a party, they are going to go look for someone else. I don't know if you can realistically hope that for the DNC to keep its thumb off the scales, uh, but it does seem like they they need somebody else to to save the party. And I think because it is actually the the party's credibility, such as it is on the line, that maybe this will happen. You know, I think if it was just a matter of uh, winning or losing, it wouldn't matter. But like hard to see how the party comes back from such a shambles if they can't figure out how to get rid of these extremely unpopular two at the top. I, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there would one could, I suppose, uh, imagine a miraculous economic recovery, uh, the complete end of COVID, um, you know, aliens coming and giving us the cure for cancer. Sure. Uh, any, but it's but realistically, uh, none of those things is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I mean, the cavalry is not coming. Um, they really do need to throw these two under the bus. Between the two, Harris is really the tough one because, uh, mm -hmm. not, you know, she would stand to be the first woman president and the first uh, and also the first, uh, you know, female woman of color. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> obviously, the first female person of color right. to be president to hold to hold to hold the presidency. And, you know, so there's, you know. 
for the Democratic Party in particular, uh, that's very delicate to sort of find a way for her to sort to push her aside. I mean, you know, they need to find maybe another woman of color to replace her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Um, it's it, you know, the identity politics piece is not a small piece when it comes to that party. No. And with Joe Biden himself, you have the very legitimate concern about his age as a, you know, as a is a good reason for him to step aside. You have no such you have no such issue with Kamala Harris. People just do not like her. That's right. I mean, you know, I suppose this administration could give her something to do that made her look good. But, you know, there seems to be, uh, at least based on the the inside the Beltway gossip, so much disdain between the staffs of uh, the vice president and the president that that doesn't seem likely to happen either. Who's the savior? Are you are you in the uh, camp that sees J.B. Pritzker coming out of nowhere to sort of save save the party for the next five or 10 years? I have no idea. I think that, you know, like you said, uh, you know, the, the DNC is not going to keep their thumb off the scale. Mm-hmm. But if they did, you can imagine sort of, uh, you know, I, I'm always interested in the, the example of the California uh, gu- gubernatorial runoff that produced Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, Schwarzenegger came out of from nowhere mm-hmm. and ended up being a pretty good uh, governor for, for California and for the Republicans, uh, a good moderate, moderate centrist administrator. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting is that the state GOP, because they were so weak. They didn't like Schwarzenegger. They didn't want him. They were. They thought he was an embarrassment. But once he took an early lead, they sort of got out of the way and just let him do his thing. It was one of those weird, uh, you know, races where like Vermin Supreme was on the on the ballot. Right, there right. was a million people, mm-hmm. um, and you know. I could see if it was really wide open, you know, maybe you get a celebrity or maybe you get, you know, some voice from the past that you know, we've thought is, is who we think is over, like uh, Al Franken. Uh, mm. You know, it, it could be, you know, really, it could be anyone if it could be anyone. Mm-hmm. But, as lo- but if it has to be an establishment Democrat, I don't see the savior. I mean, I'm yeah. sorry. I don't think Sherrod Brown is, is, is going to, uh, you know, bring a lot of like young voters to the polls. No. No, it's really I I have no idea. I I mean I think the argument I think the arguments for JB Pritzker is as you know the best that the Democrats could probably offer are compelling, uh but whether you know whether that is actually going to happen in this political environment psh, not going to bet on that. Uh Ted, you know, you know speaking of of total disasters, you're in New York. <laughs> to see. Have you seen this PSA about what to do in the aftermath of a nuclear attack? And also, I have to say, I love that it starts with this woman. She's walking in front of, like, obviously a, a green screen background. She says, there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me what, who did it or where or why. Like, OK, I feel like that's relevant. Um, I don't think I have ever existed contemporaneously with a running nuclear PSA. You know, like I saw them in school as part of history lessons, but they're back, baby. And so what what is going on here? Why is now the time to prepare for a nuclear attack in New York or to make people think about a nuclear attack in New York? Yeah, I'm I'm older than you, and I, I'm I'm almost 59, and I never grew up with uh, any of those things either. I, mm-hmm. I loved Atomic Cafe, the uh, you know the old 80s documentary about that uh, duck and cover stuff. It's really mm-hmm. funny. Um, you know, uh, the funny part is you walk around New York City, and you can still see the old uh, fallout shelter signs uh, mm-hmm. outside some of the old buildings, and uh, you know you're you're thinking, well, like what's still down there? Uh, when I was a student at Columbia uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. 
um, I wrote an article for the school paper about exploring the steam tunnels under the, under the university. They still had all these like uh, you know water biscuits uh, boxes and like these huh. uh, these water canisters from the civil defense department that once you drain them from water they converted into toilets and uh you know it was, uh. it, it, they had a whole infrastructure you know and it was kind of like so but the point is there's not going to be any food or water right yes. i mean yes. so uh you know what's going to happen of all the places you'd ever want to be in a nuclear attack new york city is is probably like the least pleasant so um mm. yeah i i liked what this what the uh the city administration uh department of emergency services said about this they said well you know a lot of new yorkers ask this question and we just felt like we should have this answer but really? what's hilarious is it's a non-answer yeah <laughs> get inside take a bath you still have standing in the middle of your house wash wash off and then just hang out like yeah it's it was step one step two step three stopped after uh before you could ask any questions of how you are supposed to sustain yourself or uh who you're supposed to listen to for guidance or anything else nutty totally nutty. It reminded me a little bit of that crazy incident last year, or maybe it was the year before in Hawaii when there was the false uh, yes. FEMA thing and people were jumping down manhole. They yes. jumped into manholes and down the sewers and stuff. And I mean, it was just like insane. I have seen people saying like, well, maybe the timing for this is that, you know, we, we have a, a, a war in Europe right now. You know, we have the war in Ukraine. We have NATO expanding. We do have, you know, uh, uh, hyper focus on the language about nuclear weapons. And, you know, it, as much as it does seem like it is nutty to have this PSA out, uh, it's not as though. The the use of nuclear weapons is absolutely impossible, right? We live in the country that has used them before. And so, you know, it's it, you got to strike this balance between going, this is ridiculous and silly. And also, you know, you, you can't rule anything out when it comes to conflicts, it seems like. No, you really can't. And it seems true. I mean, it is true that obviously there's, uh, you know, more, there's more like greater likelihood during a uh, superpower confrontation in a proxy war, uh, as we're seeing in Ukraine now, than there, than there is under normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. And there's always the possibility of just, you know, an accident, right, as has yeah. been posited many, many times. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would like there to be some sort of plan uh, to <laughs> evacuate, for example, New York City uh, in the event. But let's but let's face it. I mean, you know, the, the missiles are incoming. Twenty minutes, you can't get people out of New York City in three in no, six hours, much yeah, less yeah. twenty minutes. It's not possible. Yeah. Oh well, let's uh, talk about something. Uh, equally dire. Uh, I wanted to talk about Afghanistan for a minute. Um, Afghanistan came up yesterday in a Wall Street Journal story about growing global hunger. It was one of a group of five countries in which a collective 900,000 people face hunger and death. And so what is happening in the United States as a response to help the Afghan women and children we worked so hard to protect for 20 years. What we're doing is writing language into the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act that would prevent Defense Department funds from being used to transport currency or other items of value to the Taliban, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, or any subsidiary agent or instrumentality of either the Taliban or the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And so, as The Intercept puts it, this 
would effectively halt American aid to Afghanistan because the Defense Department is called in to provide security and logistics help for aid flights. It also helps transport currency, as you can tell from the language, which means that even if the U.S. decided to release Afghanistan's uh, something like $7 billion in uh, foreign currency that we have frozen, it would be hard to get it to Afghanistan. And so Representative Ilhan Omar tried to introduce an amendment to give the president the ability to override this language, but it was apparently just recently voted out of order. And so if this NDAA passes this week, it will make it even harder for the United States to support Afghanistan with even basic humanitarian aid. And again, The Intercept points out more Afghans are likely to die from starvation in 2022 than from our 20-year war there, which is just monstrous to contemplate. And so it is really hard to understand why we insist on heaping cruelty upon cruelty with this NDAA language that would limit our ability to uh, to intervene there. I, I wonder wh why you think this is and who it actually serves. Well, yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely right about the, the cruelty and viciousness of this amendment. Um, and you kind of have to wonder, like, you know, how can someone like that even sleep at night? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, parenthetically, uh, I think, you know, if the money were ever the billions that are owed to, Af to the new government of Afghanistan were ever returned to them, they, the money could be wired, I'm sure. Sure, but, yeah. Yeah, they don't have to put it on pallets the way they did when they were sending billions of dollars to Iraq. Well, I guess. <laughs> I mean, haven't we sanctioned—you know, like, maybe not—maybe it's not as easy as that. I mean, again, we make the rules, right? So we can, we can um, break them. But there probably are sanctions against doing business with Afghan banks. Yeah, well, that's that's no doubt true. Yeah. Although a lot of those banks are still private, I think, and okay. some and there's and some of them are still around. I think there would be workarounds, and and certainly, uh, you know, they have relations. Uh, well, actually, it's true. The Taliban don't even have diplomatic relations with the Pakistanis, which the OG Taliban did from '96 to 2001. Mm -hmm. So they had a they had a there was a conduit, a way for the U.S. to do business with Afghanistan at that time. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, you know no, it's just unbelievable. Um, I think it's just, uh, some, you know, certain lawmakers who just don't want to uh, anyone to be able to ever say that, you know, we coddled or assisted or helped the Taliban in any way. And, you know, in my personal experience interacting uh, with people online, even a lot of liberal Democrats really have no sympathy whatsoever for the people of Afghanistan. They're like, well, you know, if they don't like it, then they should rise up against their country and get rid of the Taliban. Um, you know, they should, th that's, that's on them. And I'm thinking, well, that's going to be pretty hard to do uh, when you're starving to death. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, and, and really the, the most positive influence the U.S. could ever have would be to be, you know, shipping giant uh, shipping containers full of food, you know, stamped with American flags, gift of the people of the United States yeah. uh, on them. Uh, that's uh, a positive influence. Uh, you know, um, you can, you can either do the carrot or the stick, but, you know, Anglo-Saxons, we just love the stick. We don't do a lot of carrot. No, I just, I mean, I guess 
You know, I was going to say, I, I'm trying to uh, understand what American constituency is really going to be activated by learning that, you know, my representative made sure no aid would get to the Taliban. But I mean, I did drive through like Pennsylvania and see a bunch of pictures of uh, Joe Biden in a, you know, in a turban holding uh, an RPG. It's, you know, it was something about uh, Joe welcomes back the Taliban or whatever. So I guess there's some appetite for it. But it really just it just seems like either sort of autopilot cruelty or, yeah, as you say, just a total lack of sympathy for for this country that we pummeled for 20 years in the name of, of liberation. It's, I mean, yeah, I guess when I'm asking who it serves, I just think like you really think saying, you know, I I made sure the Taliban didn't get a sing, you know, one red cent from the United States like that's going to get people to the, the ballot, the, the polls. I don't know. No, I don't think it'll do anything. Look, yeah. nobody, nobody's really talking or thinking about Afghanistan no, at all. Yeah. So it's completely off the radar. So I agree with you, Michelle. It's it's autopilot cruelty. It's you know, it's not even. It, it's not going to give uh, anyone so much as one extra vote. Yeah, uh, it's just it's just so monstrous. I just can't. I I mean, it's hard for me to let go this idea that we pulled out of Afghanistan. But just about it was in August of twenty twenty twenty. Right. I know it was in I know it was in August. Uh, And, uh, you know, since then, we've we've just stolen their money. And now we are going to watch people starve. It was August of 2021. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. good. I was thinking I thought it had to have taken a little bit longer. Yeah. Now we're just going to sit back and and watch people starve and withhold their money and uh, and deliberately create a bunch of red tape to prevent us from from bringing them any aid. And I just think, like, how can you take how can you take any kind of government seriously who would be part of such a, a, a monstrous string of acts? No, it's it's true. And um, I You know, it's amazing because what we are actually doing now is what we kind of said we had done but didn't do. You know, back in the the, the rhetoric was always that the U.S. abandoned Afghanistan in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, Mm -hmm. and then it disintegrated in 9-11, al-Qaeda, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, you know, that not really exactly how it went then mm-hmm. but that's how it, that's what we that is what we did now and mm-hmm. not only and we're not even allowing them we're not even leaving them alone to their own devices to see if they can uh, work things out on their own we're stealing their money and yeah. we're not allowing them to get new we're not allowing them to you know try to build an economy uh, from the infrastructure that they have left over uh, we're we're actively sabotaging uh, you know, are, are by some metrics the world's poorest, but certainly one of the world's poorest countries. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. And pointing to the war in Ukraine and going, "See, this is the, the this is the grain shortage is being caused by this war. This this is the reason for uh, all of this terrible famine in all of these countries that we've been interfering with for for decades. Look over here. Look, we've got a we've got a scapegoat now for the the uh, you know the results of our foreign policy." Well, the U.S., you know, uh, on the sanctions, I swear it's the oldest. It's that old. It's that old stupid joke, right? Like the guy kills the guy who kills his parents and then complains that he's an orphan. Right. I mean, you know, we, we we decided to tell the Russians we don't want your stinking oil or or your grain or anything else, and mm-hmm. then it's like, oh my God, you know, our oil prices are through the roof. Duh. Duh. Yes, uh, it's ridiculous. And at the same time, we are now, you know, we, we are doing this to Afghanistan, right? We are actively and deliberately torturing uh, and starving Afghans to death. And we are also uh, obsessed with whether or not President Joe Biden is going to shake uh, Mohammed bin Salman's hand. 
right? Uh, apparently, President Biden was going to fist bump leaders on his Middle East trip on doctor's orders to try to avoid COVID. So, you know, two years into this pandemic, uh, you can watch Joe Biden. He comes out. He's basically like forehead to forehead, unmasked, breathing all over the faces of the dudes who are greeting him. But he's fist bumping them. So that is what's going to uh, prevent any of them from spreading germs to each other. It's just Obviously, this has been about finding a way to avoid shaking MBS's hand, which, of course, is going to be difficult now because Joe Biden immediately abandoned the whole uh, no shake idea. But I mean, he is flying to Saudi Arabia, right? Joe Biden, he's, he's landing in Jeddah. He's not even going to the Capitol. There's a lot of speculation as to who is going to greet him at the tarmac, right? Whether it's going to be someone important or they're going to insult us by sending out some low-level functionary. And while the White House is insisting that this is not about asking the Saudis to pump more oil, you know, that's what I think they said just a couple weeks before the trip. So we are taking this whole trip to go and shore up our relationship with this awful kingdom. And yet, you know, th there are people who really think it's going to matter whether Joe Biden shakes this man's hand or not. It's just it, it, it's just this uh, absurd performative politics that has nothing to do with with reality. And it's it's insane to me that there's even a second's worth of thought uh, devoted to it. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it's completely insane. But you know uh, that this is what MBS is all about. He wants that. He's dying for that uh, that handshake. He's uh, mm -hmm. looking to humiliate Biden. He he it's, he needs. He wants Biden to kiss his ring, mm -hmm. and Biden's going to have to do it now. I mean, the way I look at it is. In for a penny, in for a pound. You yeah. know, once once you decide, once you let it be known that you were going to be sucking up to the Saudis for increased oil production, uh, you know, what's the difference really between that and, you know, giving him a big, uh, you know, bro hug yeah. <laughs> in Riyadh? Uh, it just doesn't make, it really doesn't make any difference. But, you know, it's going to be one of those infamous photographs. It's really going to be, it's going to be, uh, it's, it's definitely going to be a very, unappealing, uh, toxic image for this president who, you know, he sold us dignity, right? That's, that yeah. was the whole thing. I'm restoring America's dignity back. to the White House. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is undignified. You know, I mean, this is a, and, uh, you know, as I've <laughs> pointed out in my cartoon yesterday, yeah. um, there's something really funny about the fact that he published his justification for going to Saudi Arabia in the Washington Post you know, right. as an op-ed, I'm like, I'm thinking, well, doesn't just MBS doesn't really like write letters to the editor when he doesn't like what he reads in the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe uh, if I were Biden, I'd be super nervous. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the irony is just the ironies are just so ridiculous. Well, and also the Washington Post had a, an op-ed yesterday by Jamal Khashoggi's fiance. And the title was, Dear President Biden, please don't break your promise to shun Saudi Arabia. And I mean, I feel for his fiance personally, but like that that promise is long broken. And like a, a handshake being the cherry on top has absolutely nothing to do with it. Right. Like the, the, the trip at all, the refusal to condemn him, the, you know, the continuing to say, oh, this relationship is very, very important. All of that is what matters. And yet, you know, it's going to be it's going to be this like this one photo op that's going to sort of uh, sink this ship. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think that's because most Americans uh, don't really follow, you know, the news the way we do. And mm -hmm. uh, but, they, you know, 
everybody who doesn't know that, uh, you know, about our energy policy and, you know, what Biden's doing with the Saudis is going to see that photo on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's why it's just a, it's a, a PR disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. I also want to talk uh, before we let you go a a little bit more about the reaction to John Bolton's conversation with Jake Tapper on Tuesday. The Washington Post had a story yesterday with a post coming up a lot in this conversation. But their story was John Bolton said he planned foreign coups. The global outcry was swift. I mean, as it should have been. Uh, But this story is very funny, right? It asks, was Bolton serious? Though some in the U.S. had doubts, far-flung rivals suggested this was just further confirmation of what they already knew. And so, I mean, one, there's no suggestion in his delivery that Bolton is not being serious. I do not like this trend of just assuming everyone is is yucking it up through CNN interviews and you don't have to take anything they said seriously. He absolutely meant it. And so then the story goes on to quote, Leaders or representatives from Bolivia, China, and Russia saying, yeah, we've been saying this for a while and it's bad and you shouldn't do it. But so the Post takes these quotes from a bunch of official official enemies or official question marks there. The Post takes a little detour into Turkey to ridicule the idea even further. Uh, It has an academic moaning that Bolton's statements are damaging to our efforts to advance and support democracy, uh, saying we have enough trouble already countering Russia and Chinese propaganda. It cites zero of the many coups the United States has admitted to either assisting in, indirectly supporting, or has been implicated in, uh, but hasn't admitted, uh, you know, participation in. And so the story just says, yeah, Bolton, you know, a terrible example of neoconservative interventionism, as if we needed the neocons to drag us into war. And it ends with a former CIA station chief saying Bolton doesn't know a coup from a hole in the ground. And by the way, we don't do coups. And it's just like you get to the end of it and you can picture the editors at the Post sort of doing that thing where they slap the dust from their hands and they say, OK, handled it, handled it. Uh, so I wanted to ask, you know, what you think of this and, and the media reaction to Bolton's statement? I mean, because this was honestly they were just like, let's pull together a bunch of the least credible people we can find in, in this media environment. Have them, you know, have them say, yeah, coups are bad, not mention any of them. Then we'll be like over over with. We're done. Yeah, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, um, uh, for one of my books, I, I compiled a, a partial list of coups, and my publisher complained because of carried out by the U.S. And my publisher complained because it was taking up too many pages. Of you the can't book. just have a list. <laughs> <laughs> it just went on and on and on. We ended up printing the thing in like microscopic type, and it still went on and on and on and on. I mean, there's lists of those things on Wikipedia. I mean, it's they're, they're crazy. Um, it's one of those like, do they really expect that anybody believes them? I mean, yeah. you know, it's I mean, it's like what they they never heard of, uh, you know, Philip A. G. inside the company, uh, all the Latin American coups in mm-hmm. the '60s. Uh, you know, I mean, Allende, really, you know, Mossadegh in Iran. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you're just barely, uh, you know, cognizant, you know that the U.S. loves to overthrow. Uh, the regimes of other countries. Hell, we have an entire Hollywood industrial complex of movies that are about like spy, you know, spy thrillers of of, of U.S. agents doing exactly that or mm-hmm. scheming to do that. So it's you know, it's not they don't show the government of Senegal doing that to other mm-hmm. countries, right? So it's uh, yeah, no, it's hilarious. Um, and I embarrassing. 
embarrassing like, from a from a you know from the point of view of journalism, right? Like this is you're you're asking was Bolton serious? Okay, well f- figure it out. Take a look at some coups. I mean, Mother Jones, to their credit, uh, did a, did a sort of similar list of these things and a timeline of John Bolton's life to see like where he might have been involved. That was a lot more credible than this. That's hilarious. Um, you know, well, I've seen a lot of John Bolton interviews. He he is one of my absolutely favorite, least favorite people. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever seen him uh, crack a, a grin or uh, or crack or attempt to make a joke of any kind. They could also ask Mr. Bolton if he was joking. Yeah. Yeah, Jake Tapper could have done that, and they, yes, they could have followed up with that. But no, uh, not not in American journalism, folks. We don't we don't like to get close to the icky stuff. No, no well, you know, it's I, you know, I don't even understand sort of why there's even an attempt to cover these things up. It's almost better, you know, from a propaganda standpoint, to just let it go and not talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, the cover up draws attention to it. You know, it's the Streisand effect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, and it's it is it's kind of, you know, not only are they evil, but they're really stupid too. Yes. That's the, that's almost worst, right? <laughs> at least, at least they could be. At least if they were evil and clever, uh, we could. Uh, I don't know. Be, it'd be a little clearer how they got so much power. But evil and stupid is is pretty hard to swallow. It's it's kind of the worst. That was author, cartoonist, and columnist Ted Rawl. His latest book's The Stringer. You can also find him on the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Ted, always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in DC. We'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I wanted to close the show by talking a little bit more about the economic news we got yesterday and also take a look at what kind of um, global shift we might be in when it comes to the U.S. dollar and, uh, and its prevalence in global trade. Joining me for this conversation is Dr. Jack Rasmus. He's an economist, a radio show host, and the author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Uh, Jack, thanks for joining us again. My pleasure. So we got the inflation news from June yesterday. John and I mentioned it on the show. Uh, Inflation at 9.1%, the highest rate in four decades. Everything is more expensive. Gas is up more than 11%. Energy up 7.5%. Foods up 1%. The core consumer price index, excluding energy and food, that's still up 5.9%. And, uh, you know, accounting for inflation, workers' hourly wages fell. 1.1% 1. Uh, 1% during the month and are down 3.6% from a year ago. This is all according to CNBC. And so, you know, th- there is still a question, I guess, as to whether uh, we are going to find ourselves in a recession. Uh, I wonder what these indicators say to you and where you think these trends are going. Well, there's not much question. Uh, we are heading for a recession and we may already be in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will see when we get the uh, second quarter uh, numbers, uh, you know, where the economy uh, contracted 1.6% uh, in the first quarter, mm-hmm. and uh, the Atlanta Federal Reserve is uh, forecasting and it's uh, predicting GDP model 
second quarter also a, a contraction. Now, two consecutive quarters is what they call a technical recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the real recession is called by the uh, NBER uh, economists uh, after the fact. Uh, so it depends whether you want to go with the technical or uh, the academics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we may already be there. And the important th- point is, uh, you know, we've never had inflation of, uh, of uh, this dimensions uh, without it being followed by a recession. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the recession is provoked by the Federal Reserve, uh, which raises interest rates, which are going up very fast now, mm-hmm. probably uh, maybe even 1% uh, in, at the next uh, meeting, certainly at least uh, three-quarters of 1%, what they call 75 basis points. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going up rapidly, and uh, there's signs the economy is already beginning to cool. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, the only solution to inflation, uh, according to uh, you know the uh, uh, policy elites uh, in, in government, is, uh, is the Fed. Mm-hmm. Uh, raising rates uh, precipitate a recession by destroying demand, which means getting people laid off and lowering their wages. Uh, that is the solution to an inflation that is really not demand side or demand driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really a, a supply side uh, problem that we got here. We can talk about that more. But what we got going is a, a, very similar to what happened in 81, 82, mm-hmm. uh, when the Federal Reserve raised interest rates in order to deal with an inflation that was driven by foreign uh, uh, events driving up the price of oil. Mm-hmm. You know, half of the, this inflation is oil and energy. So it's a, it's a repeat here. They are engineering a recession as the solution to the inflation. And all the other stuff they're talking about uh, you know, Biden's coming up with all these these silly solutions uh, is just cover. It's just PR for the real solution that is being implemented as we talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, interest rates rising quickly. They're going to go up by three quarters of a percentage point uh, later this month by all indications. That's what people have agreed is likely to happen. And they keep saying the Fed keeps saying they they don't want to trigger a recession. That's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to achieve this uh, this soft landing. I I wonder if you can remind us what exactly these interest rate hikes are supposed to do except trigger a recession. Well, that's primarily what what they are designed to do. Mm-hmm. And whether there'll be a soft landing, uh, I don't think so. I, I uh, you know, it depends. We'll see how hard, how soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the higher and the faster you raise those interest rates, uh, the harder the landing is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, no doubt about it here. Mm-hmm. So if they keep raising at the uh, you know, 75 basis points. And, uh, you know, in in Wall Street, uh, the swap markets are uh, predicting 1% here. Of course, Canada just raised it 1%. So depending what happens, uh, we may see a 1% hike here. uh, And it's going to be devastating here in another month or two. Let me return to to something you mentioned. This is this is a line from CNBC. Uh, it says policymakers have struggled to come up with an answer to a situation that's rooted in multiple factors, including clogged supply chains, outsized demand for goods over services, and trillions of dollars of COVID-related stimulus spending that has made consumers both flush with cash cash and confronted with the highest prices since the early days of the Reagan administration. Do you think that captures uh, what the real economic issues are? And if no. you, okay, well, what, what do you, th- what is it? What is going on here that, that is not being no, that's, expressed? That's the spin, you know, that right. it's, oh, uh, we, we got too much money. People had too much money because the COVID relief and uh, now you got all this excess demand. Look, yeah, when sorry, can I just, the- I want to interrupt for a second, Jack, just to say that the, the People have too much money because of COVID relief is 
unbelievable to me, considering the discrepancy between what individuals got and what was just uh, piped into uh, the stock market to to keep it liquid. You know, I mean, I don't. I, I want you to continue, but just we got people got. $2,000. Okay. You had this like uh, paycheck protection program that was riddled with fraud, but that even, that even doesn't compare to, to what was being pumped uh, into wall street on a monthly basis by the federal reserve. And it is amazing to me that anyone with a straight face can write Americans have too much money right now. Yeah. Well, that's the conservatives, the corporate uh, right wing, uh, even Democrat uh, mm-hmm. spin on the whole thing. You know, you're right. The fed gave, the fed gave four trillion dollars within 18 months or so Mm -hmm. to who? Uh, To the banks, to investors. And most of that money did not flow into the real economy because the real economy was shut down or weak. It flowed right into the financial markets. And Mm -hmm. that's why over the course of this COVID thing, we had this incredible boom in, in financial asset values, you know, stocks and bonds and derivatives and foreign currencies and the whole thing, mm-hmm. uh, $4 trillion, you know, yeah. uh, and uh, no one asked any questions about that. Now, the real economy is is not the stock market. The real economy is where, you know, real things are made and services and people have real jobs and they get real incomes. Mm-hmm. If you look at what happened with the relief bill, the COVID relief, oh, they talk about $1.9 trillion. No, no. Only 800 billion got into the economy uh, in the first year. And in the third quarter of 21 last year, when inflation started taking off, mm-hmm. only about 150 billion got into the economy. Now, on a five and a half trillion dollar US GDP in the third quarter of last year, you think 150 billion dollars is going to push up prices? Mm-hmm. No. In fact, for the first four months, inflation did not rise. It started rising in late August and September when we had supply chain problems and and when corporations started taking advantage of the supply chain awareness and started price gouging everybody. Many of them had no supply problems, but they started price gouging anyway. And that's been going on ever since. Mm-hmm. So it's a supply side problem that then got exacerbated uh, when Biden started slapping his sanctions on global oil and global commodities coming out of Russia, you know, metals and so forth mm-hmm. and, and global uh, uh, grains and so forth. That just added fuel to the fire, but is also an artificial but supply-side problem. I wrote about all this in an article uh, you know, a month or so ago called The Anatomy of Inflation, describing how it's really a supply and a political problem that we got. You can read it on my blog, jackrasmus.com, and other public blogs. But it's a supply problem. It's not a demand problem. Mm-hmm. But they're going to take it out on demand. They're going to destroy demand and make households and consumers pay for the inflation created by price gouging and supply and political policies. Mm -hmm. That's the reality. What do you make of Joe Biden over and over uh, asking, threatening, cajoling uh, gasoline retailers and and big oil companies to to bring their prices down? I I mean, it has been embarrassing, right? It was embarrassing after he did it one time. Uh, But yeah, I think on the one hand, you have the Fed uh, manufacturing this recession that is not going to solve the problem. And you have Joe Biden sort of 
um, you know, recognizing at least one part of the problem that is just this price gouging, but obviously unwilling to do anything about it, then just tweet or say, uh, you know, you better bring prices down or else. How, how, how do you react to that? Oh, that's part of the, you know, the Biden PR. Mm-hmm. Make it look like he's he's doing something, you know, go, go after the gasoline, uh, you know, stations. Look, uh, the U.S. oil companies don't want to produce more oil. That's the issue here. Uh, And they're cutting back their refined products. The refineries aren't producing more. And the drilling, uh, you know, they're adding one or two drilling rigs a week. They want to keep the price up. And they're doing a pretty good job in the U.S. So that means Biden's got to run around the world and go beg the Saudis, oh, please produce more, which they won't. Mm -hmm. Or he's got to uh, somehow backfill uh, the fact that the Europeans are, aren't getting uh, anywhere near the oil they used to, let alone the natural gas. He's, you know, he goes to Venezuela and he says, oh, send some oil now, Venezuela, to Europe because we can't. I can't get our oil companies to produce anymore. You see, all these initiatives of, of Biden are just PR cover for the real policy, which is, OK, Federal Reserve, whack the hell out of everything, cause a recession. <sighs> And that will bring it down. Yeah. And it's just it's horrible to watch and to contemplate the people whose lives are going to be really upended by this. Right. All the people who will be thrown out of work in a country where our social safety net is really absolutely, uh, you know, is minimal. Right. It's a it's it's just it's pretty remarkable to be able to watch this cruelty enacted and to watch all of these, uh, you know, media sources run cover for it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's it's going to continue. Yeah. I wanted to also ask you about the significance of, of seeing the euro reach parity with the dollar. It's just about even if it, it touched actual parity and then moved a little bit. But what does that say for European economies? Well, it's, it's not just the euro uh, that has dropped almost 20 percent, but the yen has dropped 17 percent. In other words, all the major currencies of the world are collapsing. Why? Because interest rates are going up. That drives the value of the dollar up. And because the dollar is the global currency, all the other currencies reciprocally decline. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's the uh, the role of the U.S. dollar. We are exporting inflation as well as uh, exporting re- recession to the rest of the world. It's all because of the dollar going up. But that's because the Fed interest rates are going up. Mm-hmm. And that's going to cause even a more inflation in Europe because when your currency goes down, the imports you got to buy go up in price. Mm-hmm. And Europe buys a lot of imports around the world. So they're, and that's on top of their problem with their energy prices because of the war and the politics there. Mm-hmm. Europe is in in a deep doo doo here, mm-hmm. and they're going to have even a, a worse time come you know three to six months from now. Uh, and their recession is going to be even worse than the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Japan, uh, you know, is in the same boat. And, of course, across the world, the emerging markets uh, uh, countries are even in, in worse shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. is wrecking the global economy right now. But it's protecting the dollar. And it's going, which is the linchpin of the U.S. global economic empire, protect that dollar. Right. And the question is, honestly, uh, how long can can this go on? Right. I want to ask you about the global status of the dollar. There's increasing trade in currencies other than the dollar. Uh, and, you know, I, I wonder if you want to talk about how much of our foreign policy is based on this determination to maintain dollar hegemony and whether, uh, you know, we actually can maybe see the end of it from our vantage point right here. 
Well, as I said, the dollar, U.S. dollar is the global trading currency and reserve currency, and they're going to protect that at all costs. And once that really begins to uh, uh, fade away, then the empire is in deep trouble mm -hmm. economically, and they know it. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, what's happening is is because of the policies going on, political and economic, uh, the rest of the world, a, a lot of countries, you know, the BRICS, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Br Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, and now they're adding uh, Argentina in Iran and probably Indonesia to the BRICS. Mm -hmm. Those countries, as they get a critical mass, are going to start using their own currency, are going to start using their own credit system, uh, their own international payment system. Mm -hmm. So U.S. policies, which are really amateur, yes. uh, it, it's incredible. I, you know, when you think about it, how inept, how inept the U.S. capitalists and their political friends are in protecting their own empire. They are shooting themselves in the foot. Mm -hmm. And we will see steadily, it's not happening overnight, the dollar is not going away overnight, but we will see steadily uh, alternative currencies, alternative credit systems, and alternative international payment system, mm -hmm. uh, and other institutions as well, alternatives to the IMF, alternatives to the World Bank. We are in the formation of a uh, dichotomous global uh, economic system. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can talk to us about what happens, you know, as these dominoes start to fall, and some of them have been set up already, as you mentioned, BRICS talking about an alternative reserve currency, BRICS talking about alternative um, lending institutions. As uh, the dollar loses ground as the global, uh, the global currency what happens in the United States, right? What what happens to the value of our money? What happens to our domestic economy? Well, if the dollar loses value, then uh, you know you're you're not going to have uh, wealthy uh, people and companies around the world uh, sending sending their capital to the U.S. by buying uh, buying the dollar. Mm -hmm. If the dollar uh, loses value. Uh, you're not going to have uh, offsetting capital flows into the U.S. And that means you have a real balance of payments problem mm -hmm. and you have a problem of recycling the dollars. You know, right now, uh, the under neoliberalism, the uh, U.S. has this uh, what's, what's called a twin deficit system. Mm -hmm. The U.S. purposely uh, sends more money uh, offshore uh, into the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, into its global economy. And the idea is that uh, as U.S. companies move offshore, right? Uh, and the idea is the the, the indigenous elites, uh, you know, in, in these third world countries recycle the money back to the U.S. So does, so does Japan and others and Europe and buy U.S. dollars, mm -hmm. right? They recycle that money from the trade deficit uh, going out. They recycle it back. And this is important. The U.S. depends on that recycling of the money coming back and buying U.S. treasuries in order to offset its budget deficit. Mm -hmm. In other words, the trade deficit creates the solution to the budget deficit. And the budget deficit allows the U.S. to spend all trillion dollars a year on war. Mm -hmm. and give massive multi-trillion dollar tax cuts to corporations and the rich. Well, if that money is not coming back anymore, if you don't have that twin deficit recycling, then guess what? You know, you're going to have to do something about spending a trillion dollars on defense, yeah. right? Or giving tax cuts to the rich. It'll upset the whole uh, 
U.S. capitalist system, you see, and mm-hmm. it goes back to the dollar. It goes back to the dollar. That's why they'll do everything to try to protect it. But what they're doing now is shooting themselves in the foot longer term in order to provide for the short term. Yeah, I think that I think that is exactly right. And I think we will probably start to see some of the results of that sooner rather than later. That was Dr. Jack Rasmus. He's an author. He's an economist. Uh, Jack, why don't you tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work? Yes. Well, you can follow me uh, you know, regularly on my blog, just simply Jack Rasmus, J-C-K-R-A-S-M-U-S dot com. And also follow me day to day on Twitter at Dr. Jack Rasmus. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We'll be back after this. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with producer Ray Valencia with a few last headlines before we let you go. And we have an update as of, you know, today in the trial of WNBA star Brittany Griner. She's appeared in a Russian court and her team Members of her professional Russian basketball team have apparently spoken in her defense, talking about her contributions to the team, her abilities as a player, her personal contribution to strengthening the team's spirit. So nice to see at least that uh, her Russian teammates are there talking about how she's not not a terrible drug trafficker and criminal for having a little bit of hash oil in her vape pen in her bag there. Yeah, it absolutely, it absolutely is. We also got a little bit of news um, that might affect uh, some of what we're going to hear tomorrow from Joe Biden's trips in Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, Apparently, some contentious island uh, uh, possession issue is uh, is about to be resolved. Israel and Saudi Arabia have been at odds over who owns what of these the the Tiran and Sanafir islands, which, if you look on a map, are way closer to. Well, you know what? Actually, <laughs> you know what? It's a toss up. It's a toss up. But this has been this has been a, a contention, right? a bone of contention. And apparently the U.S. has been uh, quietly negotiating a a deal for months that would uh, have Israel swap these Red Sea islands, uh, I think, to Saudi Arabia. So, you know, we might be getting closer to another historic historic deal along the lines of the Abraham Accords, which was just a a, a free trade bill uh, presented as a great policy, foreign policy, foreign relations achievement. The other uh, the other news that we have here is we hadn't talked about the ten uh, year old rape victim saga. Oh, this is such a terrible story. It was a it was a nasty little story uh, surrounding a, a really horrifying event, right? Which is the the rape of a ten year old girl who became pregnant and had to leave Ohio to go to Indiana to try and get an abortion. Um, the The story was initially reported. Then there was some questions about its sourcing. There were some questions about the sourcing, and I guess the report wasn't filed right away. Mm-hmm. And the Ohio Attorney General, who's a Republican, mm-hmm. went on Fox News and was 
kind of questioning the whole legitimacy of the thing. Yeah, saying this is this is fake, fake news mm-hmm. again. Well, it turns out it seems like it, it seems like it's not fake, and that's mm-hmm. because a doctor in Indiana uh, has has spoken to multiple news outlets about it. So, really, seeming like the preponderance of evidence suggests that this story was real. Uh, but now you have the attorney general of Indiana. Mm-hmm coming out and saying, we are gathering the evidence as we speak. We're going to fight this to the end. We're going to look at the licensure of the doctor if she failed to report it. Uh, He's saying in Indiana, it's a crime to intentionally not report. I believe because this girl, when she came to Indiana, was at uh, six weeks and a few days. Yeah. So past that six-week cutoff. Yeah. Six-week cutoff, which... uh you know, was a trigger law, went into effect after Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. But here's the line. Here's the line that uh, really chilled me. Uh, Attorney General Todd Rakita says, this is a child and there's a strong public interest in understanding if someone under the age of 16 or under the age of 18 or really any woman is having an abortion in our state. What's the public interest in any woman having an abortion in Indiana. Honestly, I mean, yeah, of course, there's a public interest in understanding if children are abused, right? The state has an obligation uh, to to mm-hmm. uh, punish that crime, right? And, and change that situation. But a public interest in any woman coming yeah. to have an abortion before six weeks, which is still legal, even if extremely difficult to manage. And we talk about that protecting children. Yeah. yeah. And who is the child in the situation? And we were talking about protecting children. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, Republicans want to go after this, protect the life of the child. Rape is terrible, but murder is even worse. <sighs> but tell me, how can a 10-year-old child have a baby safely? I'm not a physician. But it just seems to me like that's a high risk proposition. Yeah. No, it is. Abs- it is an absolute uh, an outrage. Right. The the entire way that this was handled and also just shows there's nobody. It, I mean, I hate to say it. It is really hack, but it does show no, nobody trusts each other. Everyone thinks that everybody else is just flat out lying, mm-hmm. made up the case of this this 10 year old girl. Right. You know, I mean, it's just uh, and I it's it's a terrible place to be. Right. Especially if you were just a regular person who's just trying to read the news and have some have some faith that it's telling you something that is at least roughly true. And to have you some know? empathy for the people involved in the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Horrifying. I mean, that's, it's just horrifying. And this is just what, a few weeks after the reversal of Roe v. Wade. I mean, what's what's going to be next? I mean, this is going to be the beginning of many more cases down the road. And I can't imagine this being good for Republicans running and no, I don't. I don't think it will in be in the midterms. Nope. All right, we got to leave it there. Okay. I want to thank our guests as always. Thank our producers and engineers. And uh, on behalf of Ray Valencia and myself, Michelle Woody, thanks to you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Thank you and bye bye. <laughs>